This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from Tibetan folklore where we'll see that if seven angry wizard roommates are chasing you, it might not be a great idea to stop for story time, and how the wisest thing you can do is jam your mouth full of wood chips. The creature this time is the reason to hire a clown, because you might just find yourself the proud owner of some magical teeth. This is Myths and Legends, episode 275, Freebird. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes from Tibetan folklore, and we'll start out with a hermit, who just made a really fortuitous catch. bird the hermit muttered to himself i mean who else is he gonna mutter to he's a hermit he was out by the river when he caught a bird in the air because that's definitely a thing not just something that happens because the story needs it to the bird said he wasn't exactly a free bird he was working on that actually Ooh, free talking bird the hermit said shoved the struggling white bird into the sack at his side and hobbled back to his hut. Yeah, so it's kind of a long story, the bird said, fluttering in the hermit's hut. I'm actually the prince, the son of a Khan. Oh, this will actually make things a little clearer. Here we go. He transformed back into a human in flowing, soft robes. Yeah, I'm the crown prince, heir apparent. I have this brother who is super lazy, and even though Khan dad tried to get him to work, he couldn't pique the kid's interest in anything until this internship came up with seven evil wizards. And I was like, is that a good idea? Dad didn't seem to care though, as long as the kid was out of his hair. I was curious, and I stopped by their evil wizard cave, where they were just using my brother for a servant. While I eavesdropped, I learned a fair bit of magic myself, enough to transform into stuff. I wanted to give my brother a better life, so I transformed into a white horse and told him to sell it at the market, but to not take it anywhere near the evil wizard cave. Well, as we've established, he's super lazy, and the evil wizard cave was on the way, and they recognized me immediately. Bought me, and I've been transforming into stuff, trying to escape them for the better part of a day. Just then... There were seven knocks at the door. That's them, the prince said. Hey, can you help me out with a favor? The hermit didn't immediately respond. He said, that story sounds strikingly similar to the story of Dionigi, the kid who interned with a tailor who turned out to be a wizard. He already knew that one. Oh, cool, the prince said. Very nice of you to do your little story knowledge flex after I've explained everything when seven evil wizards are chasing me. So, the favor? I won't lie, and I won't be violent toward another living thing. The hermit nodded resolutely. The prince said he could work with that. That necklace the hermit was wearing. It was a nice one. Cool beads and all that. The prince was just gonna... The prince leapt at the hermit, and, as he did, turned into an identical centerpiece bead 
on the hermit's necklace. The hermit heard, at his neck, the son of the Khan say, please comply with everything they ask, but when they ask you to take your necklace off, just break it instead. Hi, seven strange men at my door, the hermit said when he answered. These seven evil wizards nodded politely. Hey there. They were all just walking in the area together. And they were like, isn't this where that famous hermit, Nagarguna, lives? So they figured they would stop by, say hi, bask in his wisdom for a bit, and check out the gift shop situation. Gift shop? Nagarguna questioned. Yeah, you know, little touristy trinkets for visitors, the seven evil wizard roommates and best friends said. Yeah, I, I don't have a gift shop. I'm a hermit. Nagarguna started to close the door, but the wizard stopped him. Oh, but they would want something to show they were here. Hmm. How about that necklace? They could take that, show it off, create some buzz in the evil wizard community about him. The hermit said that the point of being a hermit was, you know what, never mind. If they wanted the necklace, it was theirs. No cost. Just please leave. He moved to take the necklace off, but broke it instead. The dozens of beads careened toward the dirt floor, and as they did, they transformed into worms. When the worms hit the ground, they immediately started to burrow. The wizards pointed below and shrieked. He was in the necklace. They sensed it. He was trying to get away. Get the worms. Like Link when you've hit a cucko one too many times. The hermit was bowled over by a cloud of chickens. The wizards were going after the worms. As they pecked and played a slimy and brutal tug of war with the ground, though, they didn't notice that the big bead had rolled to the side of the house. The bead that took human form with a staff in his hand. Seven quick strikes and one blood-covered hermitage later, and the prince, the son of the Khan, was finally free. He nodded a quick thank you to the horrified Nagarguna, and the hermit just stood there. That was so much death. Yeah, and who's gonna miss them? They're evil wizards and slavers too, if you needed another reason to not feel bad about this. Also, I did it. Didn't ask you to do anything the prince said. But you didn't need to. The hermit looked at the carnage with disappointment, at the seven lives lost. There's always a better way than violence, he said. Your heart is not evil, but you have done an evil thing here today. The prince said, all right, he'd bite. If there was a better way, what was the better way here today? The hermit only chuckled. The prince would be unable to see that in his current state, even if the hermit tried to explain it to him. My current state, the prince asked. The hermit ignored him. Had your knowledge been perfect, you would not have found it necessary to take the life of any living creature, even in self-defense. Further, you would make a wise con when your time came. I can teach you, but you must listen. Then the hermit went to get a mop. He didn't want that stain to set. The prince stood thinking about it while the hermit dabbed the rugs. The prince was smart. He knew he was smart. He had picked up magic from eavesdropping, so he was smart enough to know that he wasn't wise. I'll do it, the prince replied. He was sorry about this wrong, his ignorance. 
he would faithfully carry out any task the hermit asked of him to show his true repentance. Nagarguna, the hermit, absolutely had a wayward prince wish list because he had a task primed and ready to go. The city cur. City cur, the prince asked. The hermit explained that it was a creature of magic. Good magic. But it was strange. It was gold from the waist down, emerald from the waist up, and had a head that looked like mother of pearl. Mm-hmm. The prince needed a little bit more to go on than that. So you are going to bring him here for me, the hermit declared. We'll bring him back here, put him in a nice little shady grove, and he'll bless our valley and your kingdom completely voluntarily with wisdom, knowledge, and gold. The prince said that that sounds like a creature zoo? He was starting to wonder about this. But sure, he would do the task for the hermit. It was hard to see how this would bring him perfect knowledge, but whatever. How could he find and catch the creature? The hermit laid out the axe, the sack, and the magic rope. Also a bunch of barley corn that he would explain later. The bag was your standard bag of holding that could hold a hundred creatures like the city cur. The rope could bind him, and the axe is called White Moon. <laughs> Just show the city cur that axe and he'll get in line. The prince noted that that sounded like a threat. I mean, brandishing an axe, binding someone, and telling them to get in a bag? Were they kidnapping this creature? This sounded like kidnapping. The hermit laughed. The prince came to the hermit to learn wisdom, didn't he? Couldn't it be possible that there was more going on here than straight kidnapping? Hmm? He might know a bit more about these things than the prince. The prince considered it. Uh, okay, sure. The hermit nodded. Very good. Also, when the prince had the city curb bound and in the bag, it was important that he didn't talk to it at all. That might be the most important thing. The prince said, okay, he would do it. He would travel 300 miles, bind this creature, and stuff him in a sack. Still really sounded like kidnapping, though. We'll see that, yeah, it's pretty much kidnapping, but that will be right after this. broke camp early. Two months, 200 miles across the wilderness. He scooped dirt over his campfire, ate the bit of dried meat he brought with him, and looked at the mountain ahead. If you're wondering, most of your problems can be solved by packing extra barley corn. One time, after the first 100 miles of his journey, when the first set of blisters had deflated and the second round was just starting to show, he found himself up against giants or so the giant said. Really, they were the ghosts of giants who had lived long ago. He tossed the barley corn in the air, and they vanished. He wasn't sure what would have happened without the magical barley corn, so yeah, pack extra magical barley corn. The second threat, just the previous evening, was ghost mythological dwarves. Another sprinkling of barley corn, another apparition of apparition. The road ahead 
wasn't a road anymore. It was a long trudge through forests that tore at his clothes and at the skin underneath. His feet swelled when his shoes soaked with waters of the wetlands and his hands tore when he found the base of the mountains. Finally, squinting into the wind of a mountain pass, he saw the cave, the home of the city Kerr. He entered and was no longer among the frigid crags. He breathed deep of the fragrance that came from the flowers. A rainbow of colors flashed in the air above him as the birds took flight, and he bent down to drink from a cool, flowing stream. He sat up. This was nice. Then he sighed. All right, wait for it. The sky turned dark. The fragrance soured. There was an otherworldly laughter. A shadowy form peeked from behind each of the flowers. They danced and swayed out in the open. Somewhere, a discordant lullaby echoed. The souls of the dead had come for him. Hi, the prince said as he fished through his bag. I'm, I'm really sorry. I know you're the souls of ugh, dead children, which is dark even by fairy tale standards, and I'm not sure what you want from me. My guess is that it's like a shining thing where you want me to come play with you forever and ever and ever, but he tossed the magical barley corn into the air, and the souls evaporated. I'm not gonna do that. Sorry about your loss. Of you, the prince grimaced. Like he said, this was dark, even by fairy tale standards. As the lights came back up in the gardens, the prince was distracted from the tragedy by the thing that he had just spent three plus months and 300 miles on the road searching for, the city Kerr. There, off in the distance, on a hill up by his mango tree, stood a creature who was gold from the waist down, emerald from the waist up, and had a head like a mother of pearl, which I didn't quite know what that meant. It's like a shiny, whitish, iridescent color. The prince just walked up to the creature, who vanished the moment the prince got within grabbing range. The prince, standing next to the mango tree, nodded. Okay. He had been coached through this situation. Take out the white moon axe, brandish it above his head, and make his demands. I have been sent by the hermit Nagarguna. Our kingdom is in need of your aid. Please come with me, he said, and raised the axe. Immediately, the city cur appeared between him and the tree, palms out. Please, please don't hurt the mango tree. He would do anything. The prince looked at the axe and then the tree. Oh, this, this felt even worse. He didn't know he would be threatening what this guy loved most. Still, he was committed now. He had come this far. Even if he wasn't exactly sure if he and the hermit were the good guys anymore. Hey, I'm bored. We there yet? The city cur asked as the pair bumped along. It had been difficult on the journey to find the city cur. The prince was now on a third generation of blisters. But on the way back, he had the walk, all of his supplies, as well as a mythological creature made out of gold and emeralds who wouldn't stop talking. You're a smart one. You've been trained well, the city cur told the prince when it was clear the prince was not going to reply at all. Wow, not even going to say, hey, Sid, thanks for the compliment. 
Rude. But, you know, so was kidnapping, so what did I expect, you know? The prince almost replied that they weren't kidnapping. He was pretty sure. It was for the greater good of his people. But he saw what the city cur was doing. The whole purpose of all these words was to try to goad him into saying something for, I don't know, reasons? The prince was pretty unclear what would happen if he did speak to the city cur, but the hermit warned him pretty strongly against it, and the city cur was pretty excited for him to do it, so the prince decided to play it safe and keep his mouth shut. Still, the creature on his back kept bobbing his head out of the bag, begging the prince to tell him a story. He was so bored. The prince only shook his head. Okay, well, fine. Do you mind if I tell you a story then? The creature asked. The prince looked ahead to a long stretch of dry plain. It would help the time go faster, the creature offered. The prince remembered the months and months ahead of him on the way back. Yeah, some stories would help the time go by. He gave the creature a nod. And then before the creature started, the prince wondered to himself, wait, was all this just an elaborate framing narrative? The farmer prayed. He had been trapped in poverty his whole life. He had a heifer, a female cow, but she was getting on in years. All he wanted was a calf. If he had a calf, he could sell it, buy another cheaper bull, and then maybe have a chance. Then, one night, from the barn, he heard a bellowing. The cow. The farmer swung open the barn door to see a cow standing there and something behind her dripping. He was about to thank the heavens when he noticed it wasn't a calf, but a boy. The boy was thin and ragged. He held up his hands. The farmer grabbed his staff from the wall and pointed it at the boy. What was going on? The boy said he truly had no idea at all. He thought he just came out of this cow, but that couldn't be right. Also, he was talking and he stood, he was able to walk, so... Yeah, all this was pretty confusing for him, too. You stay right where you are, thief, the farmer barked, inching closer to the boy and tossing him some rags to wear. The boy said he was literally covered in cow placenta. What did the farmer think the story was here? The farmer said that the story was the kid was getting out of his barn as quickly as possible before the farmer dragged his body out. The boy, who said his name was Masang replied that he had just come into the world five minutes ago. He knew no one and nothing. He needed the father. Masang didn't know what he would do. The farmer's shoulders slumped. The boy, Masang, didn't understand. The farmer barely had enough to feed himself. The story says he barely had enough to keep his soul and body together. He couldn't support a kid. Masang got on his knees. Money? That was what the man wanted? If Masang brought money, then the man would adopt him? The farmer shook his head and raised his staff again. Masang might be minutes old, but he could understand that the farmer was not messing around. The farmer said that Masang could take a minute, but he expected Masang to be out of the barn by the time he returned. Heavy doors swung open, and the farmer walked out into the night. Then... The farmer paused. He looked at his staff. What was he doing? 
he had met someone in a worse spot than himself. The kid truly had nothing and no one. All he wanted was a family and a safe place to sleep. The farmer had been angry, but he wasn't heartless. He could make this work with his newborn teen son. Kid, the farmer called out to the barn. The farmer turned and went back in. Hey, if Masong wanted to stay... But Masong had taken the farmer's threat seriously. He ran as fast as he could the moment the farmer left the barn because he truly believed his life depended on it. The farmer looked off into the night toward the direction the kid had gone. He called out, but Masong was already out of earshot. His prayers from that day forward weren't for a calf. They were for Masong. Masong stopped and looked at the man. So, he was only about two weeks old. Were people supposed to be that shade of green? Like, he was figuratively green. He didn't know it was up. But this guy, this guy was literally green. Green hair, green clothes, green skin. You know you just said all that out loud, right? The green man said to Masong. Also, Thanks for commenting so much on my skin color. That will age well. Furthermore, did the boy say that he was two weeks old? Masong stopped and told the green man of his situation. The green man nodded. He knew the fear and ignorance of people all too well. The green man, too, was alone. Want to, I don't know, join up together? Masong offered. If the world won't accept us, then... Maybe we should stick together, you know? The green man thought about it. You know what? Sure, let's do it. They continued on their journey. And I know the story started with a kid being birthed from a cow and then meeting a green human in the forest. So it's not weird that they would meet a blue person and a purple person. So they all agreed that to avoid the fear and ignorance of the world at large, they would build a home together. And from this point on, I'm going to do the Reservoir Dogs thing and call them Mr. Green, Mr. Blue, and Mr. Purple. Toward the end of their travels, they spotted a hill with a hut at the top of it. They poked around a bit and, finding it abandoned, decided that they could stay here. Mr. Green, Mr. Blue, Mr. Purple, and Masong all went to work repairing the hut. And in time, they had a home. Masong went to trade with a local village and secured a cooking pot. Each day, one person would stay home while the others went out to hunt. The one who stayed home would prepare the midday meal for the hunters. After the first day, though, the three hunters, Mr. Blue, Mr. Purple, and Masong, returned to find chaos. But not like a lot of chaos, like a dash of chaos, like a quarter cup. Oh, it was horrible, Mr. Green cried as the others rode up. There were like five... Uh, uh, 50 guys. They showed up and were like, we're gonna rob you. And I was like, over my dead body. And I fought like, I don't know, 20 of them. But 50 minus 20 is still a lot. So I had to give in. Are, are you okay? What did they take? Misong asked, looking around the house. Mr. Green nodded. 
pot. They took the pot of food. Oh, that that pot that we just picked up in town? Anything else? Masang was perplexed. No, they were pretty excited about that pot, so yeah. Tried to fight them, but they got the best of me. No wounds or lasting damage or bruises, though, so that's cool. Sorry about the pot. Masang said to Mr. Green that it was cool. He was glad that Mr. Green was okay. It's weird, but they would just have to cook over the fire tonight. Like, they were back on the road. That afternoon, while the three men cooked, Masang went out and inspected the hoofprints that the host of men who had sent an army after a cooking pot left behind and was perplexed. Something about this didn't add up. As in, nothing about this added up. Still, he kept quiet. Kept quiet while Mistress Blue and Purple, upon Masong returning from the hunt with the other two, the two following days, had the exact same stories. A whole army of men, a pitched, outnumbered battle, and the theft of the cooking pot that Masong kept going out of pocket to replace. Finally, it was Masong's turn to stay home and cook. He would see these horsemen for himself. We'll see these definitely real horsemen, but that will once again. Alrighty. Masang set the cooking pot down on the fire and sat sharpening his spear. Now we wait. It didn't take long. Only the amount of time for the pot to boil and for Masang to slide the meat down into the broth for the mostly human minotaur to hear a noise outside. Alack-a-day, alack-a-day, what a steep climb. But methinks I smell a savory stew cooking within. A small head popped over the windowsill. Then a hunched and shriveled body hefted herself over the ladder and thudded down onto the floor. When she did that, a small bundle fell from her coat. And Masang rushed over to help her up. She refused, but that didn't hinder Masang's true purpose kicking the bundle behind a nearby pack. Brushing herself off, she said, Oh, give an old woman a taste of your stew. Then I will be gone and trouble you no more. Masang realized that this was absolutely what happened to the other three guys. He agreed. He would be happy to give her some stew, but oh, it was just too thick right now. Would she mind going to get some water? He could tend to the stew, and when she got back, it would be ready. The woman groaned, Okay, sure. She would do that. Masang smiled a thank you and handed her the bucket. The rusted one with the cracks on the bottom. By the time she noticed, she would be halfway back. When the woman scrambled over the windowsill again, despite being able to use the door this time, Masang watched her leave. And then he inspected the bundle that she dropped. It was made out of cat gut, which, despite the name, is not always made out of cat's guts, but can be made from the stomachs of sheep or anything else. It's a very strong cord, and this one bound an iron hammer and iron scissors. Small ones, like toy prize small. He plucked them from the cat gut, which, gross, and they started to grow in his hands. Soon, he was wielding a sledgehammer and scissors. Maybe that's more impressive in those days. Not sure. Masang was sure that he couldn't give these items back to the witch. She had been robbing them for days, so, you know, maybe she couldn't be trusted. 
He found his own tiny hammer and scissors, also not sure why he had those on hand, and wrapped them in a non-intestine cord he had lying around, and waited. He didn't have to wait long. The witch came back howling at him. He had given her a bucket with a hole in it. You were going to steal all of our food and our pot for like the fourth time, Masang accused. No, I wasn't, the witch said. I ain't the pot. Yes, you were. You're still considering it, Masang said, stepping between her and the pot. What was with her and pots? No, I'm not. Just give me some of your stew and I'll leave, the witch said. Masang waved his finger. No, no, no. If he gave her the stew, she would get super strength and then take the pot too. So long as she didn't eat the stew, she was no stronger than him. You must fight me then, the witch screamed. Uh, Quick sidebar. If a witch shows up at your house and demands that you fight them, you don't? You don't have to do that? You can probably just ask them politely to leave. The witch had no power, and Masang knew that. But he was also tired of his friends getting tricked and paying for new pots, so he said sure. He would accept her challenge. And also, quick evil magic user tip, probably also only accept their challenge if you have their magic items on hand. Which Masang did. We've talked about it on this podcast, and not all witches are bad. This one was, though. Leaving aside the theft, she was also pretty pro-slavery, which she loudly proclaimed as she ran around Masang, wrapping him with what she thought was the catgut, saying that he would be her slave forever. It wasn't catgut, it was just the twine that Masang had wrapped his tiny hammer in and then slipped back into the witch's pocket. He broke out, bound her with her own catgut, and won the first test. If we have any evil witches listening, take the loss and just find another house from which to steal stew because when she grabbed the mallet, she didn't notice that it didn't grow. So for a good few seconds, she was just tapping on Masang's head with a tiny hammer. Masang grinned. My turn. There was a screech, and Mr.'s green, blue, and purple saw the shadow take flight, pouring blood onto the dust, dirt, and grass below. Masung ran behind it, following the trail. He stopped in front of them, saying that he knew they lied about the horsemen, it was okay, he wounded the witch, but they needed to follow her back to her hideout before she returned even more powerful than before. He leapt atop Mr. Green's horse with him, and they all rode off, following the blood. They followed her for the better part of a day, riding their horses to a lather, until, finding themselves in a wasteland, they saw the form in the sky waver, dip, and drop. Masang pointed. There. That was where she fell to the earth. He didn't mean to kill her. She would have done worse to us if we didn't follow, Mr. Green said as they slowed to a stop. The witch hadn't fallen on the ground. She had made it home, to her burrow. They looked down the hole to see the witch, sprawled out dead. Dead on a smog slash Scrooge McDuck style treasure hoard. Wow, okay. Masang was the only one brave enough to go into the hole, so the trio lowered him down with ropes, and he found some bags below. He avoided the witch's corpse, filling up the bags with gold, diamonds, rubies, and emeralds. With the last bit, he found three cherry pits. Ew. He looked up at the three men surrounding the edge of the hole, and told them to lower the rope so he could climb out. Guys, 
The rope? The bright light above made it so Masang could see neither the wincing faces of his friends or the witch clawing closer and closer to him, still alive, but only just. Guys? I am so sorry, Mr. Purple said. It's just, with you not here, we get more money. So, yeah, sorry about killing you. Bye. Masang screamed back that they were leaving him in this hole? Not cool. But he immediately had bigger problems. He felt the witch's nails dig into his ankle. Through coughs and blood, she uttered something as he struggled to get free. And when she was finished, he blinked. He was on the floor of the cave, still under that shaft of light. But the cave had changed in an instant. He rubbed his head as he rose, calling out to his friends, and he found himself in foliage. The foliage of a cherry tree. That wasn't here before. He turned around to look at the witch, and all that remained of her was a sun-bleached skeleton. Masung was confused. She had just been not a skeleton, right? And where did this tree come from? He looked to his hands, which, up until a moment ago, held the cherry pits. They were empty. He leaned against the tree, Wait. He climbed the tree. He climbed the tree out of the hole. His friends camped, the fire, the bags. They were all gone. For the tree to grow, and for the witch to deteriorate until her hand wasn't clutching him anymore, it hadn't been an instant. It had been years. He had been asleep for decades. He ran toward home. Where the hut had once stood, three houses now took its place. Three mansions. Masang unwrapped the hammer, and it grew in his hand. He knew who lived here. He called out to the three men, Mr. Green, Mr. Blue, and Mr. Purple. Their household guards assembled in front of their respective properties. The three unfaithful friends emerged from their own estates and started weeping. They ran up to Masang, completely leaving their guard behind begging his forgiveness. They had been selfish and scared. Masung lowered his hammer. This wasn't the greeting he was expecting at all. They said that not a day went by that they didn't feel bad about what they did, leaving him to die like that. They had been racked with guilt and shame, unable to enjoy their wealth. They deserved whatever punishment Masung deemed just. Masung wrapped the hammer in the cat gut, and it shrank. He sighed. Living in guilt and sadness for decades was honestly probably punishment enough. Not like it really affected him anyway. He didn't age a day. You know what? He could be angry, and he was still a little hurt, but he would choose not to live with that hurt. He would forgive them. Yeah, they still felt like they owed him, though. Did he want all of their money? He could have all their money. Sung said he never really cared about money. He only wanted friends, a family, people. He would venture on in this world, seeking his destiny and a place to finally call home. 
because frankly it wasn't here. They lied to him and left him for dead. The trio nodded. Fair enough. Masang said that there was one thing they could do. Take half of their wealth. Back through the deserts and forests, there was an old man living by the river. He was the closest thing Masang had to a father, though the man didn't want anything to do with him. Still, Masang said he would return with money and he would make good on at least part of that promise. Masang gathered what supplies he could and started off on his grand adventure where he could find his place in the world. Mr. Green, Mr. Blue, and Mr. Purple drove their caravans to the man living in poverty by the river, his cow having long since died. He was grateful for the money, of course, but on the day Masang left, he realized he wanted something more from life than just money. He wanted someone to share it with, to teach, to help. He had only ever wanted a son. Well, you know what? It's kind of amazing, the prince said, shaking his head. All these people living for years with regret and sorrow, they could absolutely end by trying to make things right. The farmer dad by going after his cow son, the three chromatic guys by going back and confronting their fears in the cave and rescuing Masang. Just goes to show how sometimes the safe road can be a lonely, melancholy one and that the guilt and shame can be worse than just confronting your problem and making things right. And what about Masang? Sometimes forgiving someone can mean that you're stronger than if you took vengeance. Wow, thanks for that, Sidi Kerr. The prince nodded. Then thought about it. Wait, thank you for saying all that, the creature said. Like the compliments toward his story were welcome, but also for saying literally anything to him. The bag dropped away from the creature. The ropes unwound themselves and, with a snicker, the city cur was on the wind, headed back toward its grove in the cave. The prince blinked. Wait, they had been on the road for almost a week. He, the city cur, just flew all the way back there. Of course, the prince could just give up. I mean, he was still the son of a Khan and the crown prince, and so many people do well enough without wisdom. But this was about more than that. This was about persevering when things got difficult, about growing. He didn't want to end up like the dad or the chromatic guys, living with regret. He shouldered his pack and began the long trek back to the grove. This is a framing narrative, so unless I find some more good stories from this collection, we might not be back this way. So I'll just finish it up. The prince found the city curb back by his mango tree, raised the axe, and together they were off, again, back toward the hermit. Again, the city cur was bored, and again, he began to tell a story, and at the end of it, again, the prince had a comment or question or thought that caused the city cur to be free to leave his bonds and zip back home. Maybe the prince wasn't very thoughtful. Maybe he just got caught up in the moment. Maybe he truly did need that wisdom. Whatever it was, he kept asking questions or kept saying things, and they kept going back. Eight times total. On the ninth time, after the city cur finished his story, he waited, and waited, and waited. Well, don't you have anything you want to add? A question? An inane comment? Anything? The prince shook his head and smiled, revealing a mouthful of wood chips. 
The city girl laughed and settled back. Wow, that was a first. He never had someone stuff their mouth full of wood to avoid talking, but still counted. He looked back with a sigh. Goodbye, mango tree. Goodbye, creepy ghost children. I go to a new grove now. He was silent for the rest of the ride home. Once they returned to the hermit, the elderly man smiled. The prince made it faster than he thought. The hermit embraced the city cur, and together the trio walked to a hill with a freshly planted mango tree. No ghost children, though. The prince had spit out the wood chips a couple of months prior and said that he finally understood. To be a wise king, he was to think much and speak little. He was to listen to his people and seek to understand more than he demanded of them. And the kingdom would live in peace. And when in doubt, jam your mouth full of wood chips and you'll be fine. That's it for this time. Next week, it'll be something completely different. If you're looking for something to listen to in the meantime, there's a new episode of Scoundrel out today. Have you ever thought of poking holes in your hat so your brain could breathe? Having a wrestling mat in your office so you could have impromptu matches with your employees? And using extreme starvation to treat pretty much any ailment? Bernard McFadden did. We'll see how this part dangerous, part inspiring, part extremely bizarre individual rose from nothing to become the villain of his own story. Search for Scoundrel wherever you get your podcasts or by following the link in the show notes. The creature this week is the Lumiere from the Caroline Islands in the South Pacific. So an ogress visits your island regularly. Not great, right? She likes to eat people and munch with her massive steel teeth and it's said that she can also trap people with her teeth. But that has to be like an extremely temporary thing, right? Trapping someone in your mouth is really just a middle step on the way to eating them. Still, one person decided that they had enough of this monster coming to their island, eating everyone, and making people live in terror. Sure. But also, wouldn't it be nice to have some magic teeth? I'm not sure why you'd want magic teeth, but this person did. And to get them, they needed rocks and a clown. One day, when the ogress emerged from the ocean to claim a snack, she found our intrepid hero and the clown they hired for the afternoon. And I'm not embellishing that at all. Every source I can find on this creature says that the person hired a clown. And for those of you trying to price this out, if you have any evil ogresses you need to take care of, you probably have to pay extra to perform for evil, bloodthirsty mythological creatures. Regardless... When the ogress emerged from the ocean, she found the hero standing next to the clown. And the clown just started with the act. Maybe clowns from the Caroline Islands are funnier. Or maybe the bar for entertainment for ogres that live in the sea is so low that it didn't matter. Whatever it was, the Lumiere was super into the performance. She laughed, she clapped, she smiled, joy radiated out from her face. And for a moment, the island had peace. Of course, joy radiating out from her face was the point. As she laid on her stomach, giggling, arms propping up her head, as she enjoyed the clown's antics, 
the person who put all of this together smashed out her teeth. A couple things happened next. The people in her mouth were free. She lost all of her power, and there was a mad dash for her magical teeth. Once again, not sure what you do with magical ogre teeth, but apparently it's worth risking your life and a $25 an hour clown performance to get them. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Myths and Legends is a registered trademark of Bardic Enterprises, LLC. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.